following sermon, entitled Simul Iestus et Peccator, was preached on the morning of April 23, 2023, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Romans. If we had the time, we would read chapters 3 through 8. But because we lack the time, we will read part of chapter 4 and part of chapter 7. Let's begin with Romans 4, the first eight verses. Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now let's go to chapter 7 and begin reading at verse 7. And we'll read through the end of this chapter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that I do not, but what I hate that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, 
But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. As far as we read God's Word, and it's on the basis of these passages and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 23. This can be found in the back of our blue songbooks after all the songs on page 13. The Heidelberg Catechism is a summary of the Christian faith and we use it as a teaching tool in our worship services to guide us into a right understanding of the basics of the Reformed faith. So Lord's Day 23 this morning. What doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accused me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Simul justus et peccator. That is the theme that a number of you noticed before you ever came to church. It was obvious to you that this is not English, this is some foreign language. And indeed, that statement, that phrase, comes from the Latin language, and it means simultaneously just and a sinner. For simul means simultaneously or at the same time. Justice, which it begins with an I, is pronounced with a Y, but yet corresponds to our J, refers to being just or righteous. At means and, and peccator means sinner. Simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously just and a sinner. And we use that Latin phrase, that Latin expression this morning, not as a show of learning. A minister must never try to impress his congregation with that sort of knowledge, but we use it because of the value in that Latin expression. For on the one hand, there is 
historical value to that expression. For you see, this was an important confession of those who came out of the Roman Catholic Church during the 16th century Reformation. This was a watchword of the Reformation. And really, it was a part of their stance against the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in the area of our justification. So that this phrase is at the very heart of the Reformation. And that makes it valuable for us. We must know our history. We must know the Reformed tradition. And a part of that includes this morning coming to understand the meaning and the significance of this phrase. But the importance is not only the historical value and the value of this phrase in defending the truth over against error. The importance of this phrase is also practical. And that embedded into that Latin expression is a very beautiful and comforting truth. That our God does not wait for us to become righteous before He pronounces us righteous, declares that we are right, but He does it while we are yet sinners so that our justification is not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ and by grace alone. So this morning, let's consider that idea, that truth, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously righteous and a sinner. First, we'll look at the meaning. Second, we will look at the importance, and there really the historical importance. And then third, the comfort. That we are, as believers, simultaneously righteous and sinners at the same time is the clear teaching of Scripture. And perhaps the clearest statement of all in this connection is found in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. There we read, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. That is, in spite of our ungodliness. So that what's being communicated there is not is the truth that God does not wait for us to become godly first. We don't have to improve ourselves. There's not some minimum requirement of good works. But He justifies us while we are ungodly. That is, while we are yet sinners. And that becomes even clearer when we look at the various biblical examples that are found here in the book of Romans. For example, there is Abraham of old. He's mentioned in the first three verses of the chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Verse 3 is saying, Abraham was justified by faith. So clearly we have someone who is justified. That's a testimony of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But yet, at the same time, this man was a sinner. And that comes out from the fact that in Romans 4, verse 3, really we have a quotation from Genesis 15, verse 6. 
That's noteworthy because that's relatively early in the biblical account of Abraham's life. Already in Genesis 15, it's clear he's justified. He's righteous before God. But yet, what comes after Genesis 15? Well, you have Abraham foolishly taking Hagar to himself. You have Abraham telling lies about his wife. She's only my sister. In other words, you continue to see Abraham's sin. So that when we read in Genesis 15 that he's a a just, he's a righteous man, it's clear that it's not because he's arrived spiritually. He's not on this different level from a spiritual point of view. And for that reason, God declares him righteous. Not at all. He's still a sinner. Simultaneously, just and a sinner. It's also clear from the example of David. He's mentioned next in Romans chapter 4. Verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And what the Apostle Paul is doing there is quoting from Psalm 32. One of the penitential psalms that David wrote after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And in that psalm, he's giving expression to the truth that his sins had been forgiven. He had held on to them for a time, but then when he confessed them openly, God forgave him. And verse 6 tells us that he's describing the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. David was a justified man. But he was still a sinner. It's clear from the, the very sins themselves, the adultery, the murder. It's also clear from what he himself says about his own heart in another one of the penitential psalms, Psalm 51, that he was shapen in iniquity. He was conceived in sin. David's confessing there, I am a sinner. Not just that I commit sinful deeds, but this is a part of who I am. But what is more, that David was and remained a sinner, is also evident from the subsequent history. It's not as though after that sin of adultery and murder that from then on he he lived a perfectly holy life, but we see him continuing to sin. We see, for example, his sinful pride in numbering the people. Which shows us that David was simultaneously just, righteous, and a sinner. But now there's a third example that comes to us in the book of Romans. And that's Paul's own example. For Paul was certainly justified. He writes as one as he writes this epistle, he includes himself among those who are justified. For example, in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is including himself among those who are justified and who have peace with God, but yet, Paul was and remained a sinner. He still struggled with his sinful nature, and that's the reason we wrote, read Romans chapter 7, he gives expression to that struggle against his sin so that he says, for example, in verse 18 of chapter 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, 
but how to perform that which is good. I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Paul's speaking of this intense struggle within him. He, he wants to do that which is right, but he fails again and again, and he wants to avoid that which is sinful, but yeah, he finds himself going back to sin again and again. Which leads him to say what he does in verses 21 and following. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And that leads him to cry out as he does in verse 24, O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul was a sinner. But yet at the very same time, he was clearly justified. Both were true simultaneously. So we see this Latin expression, simul justus et peccator, is biblical. We see that from the clear statement of it in Romans 4, verse 5. We see it from these three biblical examples. But now we can add to that all those passages which teach us that justification is by faith and not by works. For example, in Romans 3, verse 28, we read, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And you know as well as I do that there are many such verses that express that very truth. They are relevant to us because they're teaching us that there's not some minimum number of required good works that someone has to perform before he is ever justified. There's not a a minimum threshold of holiness, of a life of sanctification that we have to obtain to in order to be right with our God. Justification is without the deeds of the law that is apart from any works that we perform which establishes and cements the truth that as believers, we are simultaneously at the same time just, righteous before God, and yet still sinners. And it's this very truth that is embedded into Lord's Day 23, specifically question and answer 60. Question and answer 60, we read this, How art thou righteous before God? And what's noteworthy is that it speaks to the fact that we are still sinners, but yet we're righteous before God. It starts with the fact that we're still sinners. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil. Saying we're still sinners. Now, admittedly, the, what's on the foreground here is the fact that our conscience accuses us of that. But yet we recognize those accusations sting because there's so much validity to them. There's so much truthfulness to them. We have not kept God's commandments. We have indeed grossly transgressed all of the commandments of our God. And that's true because we remain sinful. 
Catechism says, and I'm still inclined to all evil. That is, I still have that sinful nature, that flesh within me that wants nothing more than to sin, that hates God and hates the neighbor. That's still a part of me. I'm still a sinner. But yet, the good news of the Gospel is that I'm also justified by faith. Because that's what the Catechism goes on to say in the rest of the answer. So that picking up where we left off in the fourth line, notwithstanding, that is, notwithstanding our sinfulness, God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. It's talking about our justification. That legal declaration from God that we are righteous in Jesus Christ. That as He looks upon us as those who are not guilty, on account of our sin, and therefore are no longer subject to condemnation and to death. And then positively, He looks upon us as those who are righteous, as those who have kept the law perfectly and thus have the right to eternal life. And the Catechism emphasizes the wonder of this. It does so when it goes on to say, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin. That is, when God looks upon us, He sees no sin whatsoever. No sinful nature, no sinful deeds. Not one lustful look. Not one careless word. Not one stray sinful thought. No sin. But not only no sin, He sees us as those who did everything that was ever required of us. That's what the Catechism expresses next when it says, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ hath accomplished for me. So that when God looks upon me, He sees me as having done all of those things that Christ did to keep the law, to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. That's the truth of our justification. But now the point we are making in this particular sermon is that we are justified even as we're sinners. Both are true at the same time. For that's the only way to understand those passages that we've gone through. And specifically those examples. Someone might try to argue, well, you can take an Abraham, you can take a David, and yes, we read here at this place in Scripture that so-and-so was justified, that he was righteous before God. But then they might say, well, the sin later on means he, he lost that state of justification. His, his legal status changed. He went back to being only a sinner. He was justified for a moment, but then the justification falls away and now he's a sinner. But that cannot be the right interpretation, the right explanation of those passages. For the rest of Scripture, rules out that understanding. For example, that's ruled out by Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. But God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. 
If Christ died for us while we were ungodly and now we are justified, well, then we have all the more confidence that we're going to be delivered, saved from wrath. So it's not the case that we were justified and then we lost that and we go back to being just sinners subject to condemnation and death. That's also clear from Romans 8 verse 1. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And that verse is relevant because to be condemned is the exact opposite of being justified. It's to be declared guilty and sentenced to everlasting death. And the Spirit is telling us here, those who are justified in Jesus Christ have no condemnation. None. Not even a little bit. Finally, in this connection, there's Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30, Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And those whom He justified, them He also glorified. So that if one is justified, it's certain, it's a guarantee that He will be glorified. Really, He is already glorified from a certain point of view. So when we see these biblical examples of someone who clearly was justified before God, but yet remained sinful, continued to live a sinful life at times. The explanation is not he went from being justified at one moment and then a sinner the next, but they're both true at the same time. Simul justus et peccator. But now that raises the question, how is that possible? What's the basis for God to declare that we are righteous even though we remain sinners? And the answer of Scripture is Christ's saving work. That's the ground. That's the basis for this truth. His saving work which includes His perfect satisfaction of God's justice. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came into this world. He was born of a woman made under the law and became a curse for us. That is, He took the punishment, the misery that we deserve for our sin. And that culminated at the cross where He endured the wrath of God against our sins when God poured out that wrath upon His own beloved Son. He satisfied perfectly God's justice. But His saving work also includes His perfect obedience to the law of God. For every moment of every day, He lived a life of obedience keeping every one of God's commandments. Every moment of every day, He loved God with His whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that obedience likewise culminated at the cross. For there He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He did the will of His heavenly Father. And now it's on the basis of both aspects of Christ's saving work, His perfect satisfaction of justice, His perfect obedience of the law, that God declares that we are righteous. That is, our justification is not based on anything that we've done. 
It's not based on our works. Nothing that we have done, are doing, or will do. But it's based on Christ's work. That is, our righteousness is something that God Himself provides. Something that He gives to us. Even as is implied in Romans 1, verse 17. Romans 1, verse 17, we read, referring back to the Gospel of Christ, for therein, that is, for in the Gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And the the idea of that that expression, the righteousness of God, is not... It's not referring to His attribute of righteousness, but it's referring to a righteousness that comes from God, a righteousness that has its source in God that He gives to us by faith. Because it comes from God and it's not found within ourselves, the Reformers spoke of this righteousness as an alien righteousness. Alien in the sense of foreign to us. Coming from outside of us. Because that's our righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. That then explains how we can be simultaneously just and righteous. Excuse me, just and a sinner. Because I remain a sinner. I still have that old man within me that is prone to all evil. But yet I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. An alien righteousness so that when God looks upon me, He sees me in Jesus Christ. But now that brings us to yet another question. How does that righteousness become mine? And the answer of Scripture is that God imputes it to us and we receive it by faith. So that there's really two aspects to how this righteousness of Jesus Christ becomes ours. From On God's end, as it were, He's the one who imputes it to us. That's the language in the catechism right in the middle. God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes it to, excuse me, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. That is, God credits Christ's saving work to our account. So that if we had the idea of a ledger book, Christ, God takes the perfect satisfaction of Christ and uses that to cover all of our sins so that in this ledger book are written every single sin that I've ever committed And on top of every one of them, stamped in the blood of Jesus Christ is the word paid. He's credited, He's imputed Christ's satisfaction to our account. But more than that, He credits, He imputes Christ's perfect obedience to our account so that it's not just, oh, my sinful deeds have been covered up with the word paid. But all of Christ's obedience has now been written into that book, into that account. So that when God looks upon us, He sees us as righteous in Jesus Christ. He declares, not guilty, but righteous. And that's how He sees us. So God 
gives this. He imputes this. He grants this. But then He also works in us so that we receive it by faith. And that's the teaching of Scripture when again and again we read in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians that we're justified by faith. That is, by means of faith. By the instrument of faith. And the idea there is not that my faith is now the thing that makes me righteous. The thing that I hand back to God and He says, okay, then you have fulfilled my law perfectly. Not that. And the catechism itself says that's not the way to understand this idea that we're justified by faith. That's question answer 61. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. That is, God doesn't take faith in the place of obedience for those who live in the New Testament. But instead, it's by means of faith that we receive and embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's what question and answer 61 goes on to say, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. That is, faith is the instrument whereby that righteousness becomes ours. Just as our eyes are the instrument whereby we see, that is, we receive the light of a beautiful sunset, so faith is the instrument whereby we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Which righteousness is the basis for our justification? So that though we are still sinners, though we must struggle every day against that old man of sin still within us, yet God declares that we are righteous in Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of that Latin expression, simul justice et peccator. But now, why are we making such a big deal of this? Why is this so important that we have this right understanding? Why do we need to learn this Latin expression? Well, the importance is, first of all, for the defense of the truth. And that ties back to what we said in the introduction that there's historical relevance to this phrase because in the history of the church, one of the errors that has been taught throughout the history of the church is that the Christian first must become or be made righteous before God could ever pronounce him to be righteous. And now to be fair, those who teach this are not saying we have to be perfect. That we have to reach that point where we never once sin in any small way, way, shape, or form. But they would say, there has to be a small beginning. There has to be the beginning of a new life of righteousness. Some good works there before God would ever declare that we are righteous. And what is more, they would acknowledge, well, we need God's grace for this. He, he works this in us. But even with those qualifications in place, they're still teaching that we're justified because of some works that we have performed. And I trust you recognize this is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. 
This is their official doctrine. Part of their official doctrine is what they refer to as an infused righteousness. We make a point of imputed righteousness over against the error of the Roman Catholic Church which speaks of an infused righteousness. God working righteousness into our heart that is working in us to live a life of obedience. But then that obedience, that infused righteousness, is a part of the reason, according to them, that God declares that we are righteous. That He accepts us. So it's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But it's not just them. Really, this is the view of the broader church world as a whole. They would not articulate it the same way as the Roman Catholic Church. Most do not speak of an infused righteousness. Their doctrine is not as well developed. But nevertheless, if you ask them, why does God receive you? Why does God accept you? Most would point in some small way to something we've done Now this is such a dangerous error exactly because every one of us is is inclined to it. This is our default reasoning, our default thinking, so that if we ponder the question, how can I be right with God? For what reason would He ever show His favor towards me? Why would He ever... Allow me to bask in the the brightness, the the glory of His countenance looking upon us in love. Our default reasoning, according to our sinful nature, is to think I have to do something. Even if it's only small, it's on me to make God happy in some way and then and only then will He look upon me as righteous and accept me. It's over that very error. It's over against that wrong view, that very error, that this morning we emphasize the truth, simul, justice, et peccator. We are simultaneously just and sinners. Because you see, the whole point of that Latin expression is to say, It's not the case that we have to become righteous first. It's not the case that we have to to get far enough down the path of sanctification and a life of obedience before God would ever declare us to be righteous. Exactly because the reason He declares us righteous is not because of anything in me at any time, but it's that alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes from outside of us that God imputes to our account. And to teach otherwise is to teach justification by works. It's to bring works into the equation of why God would receive us. Why God would accept us. And now by insisting on this point, we are in no way guilty of being antinomians. It's the charge that's raised against the Reformed faith for teaching this truth of being simultaneously justified in sinners. The Roman Catholic Church would say, well, that makes you an antinomian. Antinomian being one who says we're saved by grace alone and therefore wrongly concludes obedience is no longer necessary. 
But that's not what we're saying. We're not saying it's okay to be a sinner. You're just after all, so you might as well continue on in a life of sin. That's not at all the point. But the reality is by teaching this truth that we're justified by faith alone even while we remain sinners, we're setting forth the only truth that's going to drive and motivate a life of obedience. It's only those who know that they are right with God for Christ's sake who can ever make a small beginning in the life of new obedience. So we are not guilty of the charge of antinomianism by insisting that we do not need to improve ourselves. We do not need to get ourselves into spiritual shape before God would ever justify us. But as we hinted at in the introduction, the importance, the significance of this truth that's distilled down to four words by this Latin expression is not only for the sake of defending the truth. It's not only of historical relevance. It's also very practical. Because there's so much comfort that comes from knowing that we are simultaneously just and sinners. Comfort comes from knowing that our justification is not based on anything we have to do. I do not have to improve myself first. I do not have to perform some minimum requirement of good works. I don't have to get myself into spiritual shape before God would ever look upon me as righteous. And understand, this applies both to what we might call our initial once-for-all justification as well as the the reapplication of that again and again over the course of our lives. For You see, there is an an initial once-for-all justification. And that's really our justification in the truest sense of the word. Once God declares that we are righteous, we are always righteous. And the beauty is that not even one work is needed from us for God to declare that once and for all justification. We do not have to make it so far down that path, so far along the straight and narrow path before the burden of our guilt finally falls away. But He declares it while we're still sinners. But that applies not only to that initial once for all justification, It also applies to what we might call the the reapplication of that to our consciences again and again throughout our lives. Because while it's true, once we are justified, we are always justified. We are always right with God. Yet, when we sin, we do experience guilt again. We know we've provoked our God by what we've done and on account of that guilty conscience, we need our God to declare to us by His Word through the power of the Spirit, I forgive you. That is, we need Him to reissue that declaration. Let us hear it again. 
That when you look upon us, you look upon us as not guilty, but righteous in Christ. And there too, it's apart from our works. The reapplication does not depend on me improving myself before he reissues that declaration. And all of this means that even as sinners, we can enjoy life with this God. Because that's the blessed benefit of being righteous in Jesus Christ, that we're heirs of eternal life. That's question and answer 59. But what doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life? And the beauty is, we can enjoy that life already now. We do not have to wait till we're perfected before, until we're glorified before we get to enjoy it. And this means we get to enjoy God's face shining upon us. We get to know His favor, His love. And it's not based on anything that we do. But it's only and always ever based on Christ's righteousness. And even when sin disrupts, interrupts that fellowship, that communion that we enjoy with God, it's not our works that restore it, but it's restored by faith in Christ alone. Which is to say, the maintenance of this life with God, this communion, does not depend on us. Justification is not a second chance. It's not a clean slate where God says, okay, I'll take care of all of your past sins, but now it's on you to keep this up, to keep it going. That's not the truth of Scripture. Otherwise, those men, Abraham, David, Paul, would not have continued to know God's favor would not have continued to enjoy His fellowship, His communion. The comfort is still more. Because the comfort means even when I sin, that does not change, that does not alter my legal status before God. As the Canons of Dort teach us in Head 5, Articles 5 and 6. Head 5, Article 5, speaks of the fact that sometimes we're guilty of enormous sins. Sometimes we are guilty of these lamentable falls and it describes them as those that very highly offend God, incur a deadly guilt, grieve the Holy Spirit, interrupt the exercise of faith, very grievously wound their consciences, so that sometimes we lose the sense of God's favor for a time. But yet, even then, God still looks upon us as righteous in Jesus Christ. That's the point in Article 6 when it says that even in their melancholy falls, God does not suffer them to proceed so far as to lose the grace of adoption and forfeit the state of justification. That is, even when we commit these enormous sins, our legal status before God does not change. 
That's comforting. And what is more, the comfort is knowing that when it comes to being received again into God's favor, that too is not based on anything in me. We do not have to earn our way back into His favor by our works. It's not the case that we have to to suffer for so long that, well, I have to be miserable for this period of time and then once I've experienced the misery, then He'll take me back. Nor is it the case that we have to turn things around. That we have to make a certain amount of progress in battling against that specific sin before God will receive us back. nor is being received again into His favor based on our repentance, whether we're talking in the narrow sense of the word or in the broad sense of the word. It's not the case that I have to be sorry enough for my sins. And once there's the the right amount of sorrow in my heart, then God will take me back. No. He takes us back for Christ's sake because of that alien righteousness that's been given to us. And our repentance is really our our siding with God. Our saying, of myself, there's no reason you would ever take me back. I'm not worthy to be received again into your favor. With a looking to Christ and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ as the only explanation why God takes us back. So congregation, do you see it? Do you see why it's worth learning the Latin expression? Not just because of the historical value. Not just because it helps us defend from soul-crushing errors that plague the church. But because this is our comfort. That God looks upon me in His favor. Not because of anything I have done, am doing, or will do. But it's only and always because of Christ's work imputed to me. Knowing that's true, let us praise this great glorious, gracious, and merciful God for justifying us even while we were yet sinners and remain sinners. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for the comfort that's found in the good news of the Gospel. Apply this Word to our hearts and use it to drive away all those doubts, to drive away our despair on account of our sin, and use it to keep us from looking to ourselves, but instead to ever look to our Savior Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith and hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.